0: Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Medicine Grand Rounds. It's great to see you all here this morning. Um, for the folks who are um, watching us offsite, I'll tell you our CME code today, which is 7WHG. Um, and you probably all have noticed we now um, have it on the slides at the very beginning of the presentation. So if you're able to um, join us right on time, you'll be able to see it there. And for the folks in the room, we no longer have it posted on a big white Um, paper, but we do have it at the exits of the room on a smaller piece of paper. So if you don't have a chance to see it when you first get here, if you come a minute or two late, you'll be able to see it on your way out the door if you just take a look by the evaluation forms, um, which might prompt you to also fill out an evaluation, which we'd be grateful for. So that's our new process for for folks who've had um, a hard time finding the code. Um, With that, I am going to welcome Nicole Orzakowski, who is the section chief of rheumatology, to uh, introduce today's speaker.
1: Good morning, everybody. It is my absolute pleasure to introduce to you our colleague, Dr. Christopher Burns, who will be delivering our talk for Medical Grand Rounds this morning. So Chris graduated from Albany Medical College. He went on to uh, complete his internal medicine training at Worcester Memorial Hospital at UMass, and then his rheumatology fellowship at the UC San Diego. He spent four and a half years completing a, a um, immunology research fellowship at the NIH which truly solidified his desire to continue basic science research in immunology. Chris came to Dartmouth in 1993, where he headed his own basic science lab for 12 years. And in the mid-90s, he began a collaboration with Dr. Randy Noel, which continues to this day. Together, they've examined the roles of various immune modulating pathways, including CD40 ligand and VISTA, which is a potent negative checkpoint regulator in lupus and really could be the subject of another Medical Grand Rounds. In addition to continuing his basic science work, I can tell you that Chris has an incredibly busy clinical practice. And after practicing here for over 25 years, you can imagine he has a very large panel of patients, many of whom only want to see him. They absolutely love him. Um, I can tell you that Chris is a skilled and compassionate rheumatologist who's a role model really for the rest of us when it comes to thorough, thoughtful, and compassionate care of patients. He's a resource for those of us who are more junior, always imparting some piece of wisdom from his experience with the added bonus of his witty and sarcastic sense of humor. (laughs) His clinical interests are lupus and gout, which is why we asked him to give this talk today. I would be remiss if I didn't mention Chris's uh, teaching ability. He has played a very active role in mentoring medical students, residents, and our own fellows over the last 25 years. Um, He's one of those rare individuals in medicine who's really been able to attain success in basic science research while maintaining a very active clinical practice, teaching and mentoring at every level in this institution, I'm honored to welcome our colleague, Dr. Burns, to Medical Grand Rounds.
2: Thank you. Well, that's very nice. (laughs) Thank you. well, we got a lot to cover here, and I'm going to try and um, give you a more modern perspective on gout and try to tie it into some of your old uh, ideas about gout, which I assume you have, because I have them too, from my medical school training, etc. cetera. Um, you've already seen this learning objectives. <clears throat> I'm going to start with a definition of gout that you can look over that I snatched from up to date. Um, but we want to we move on from there. And so for the first half of the talk, I'd like you to sit back, if you will, and consider the following paradigms about gout, not necessarily mutually exclusive. As you'll see, they overlap quite a bit. And see if they make you rethink gout um, in a new way. So paradigm one. Thinking of gout as an evolutionary disease. Just how far back does gout go? Well, not that far back, (laughs) depending on uh, how you look at things, but quite far back. (laughs) So, uh, as you may know, that's. uh, the last major extinction about to happen when the comet hit the Yucatan Peninsula about 66 million years ago and got rid of the dinosaurs, at least that's the leading theory. But that's a lead-in for our first case and our only case, as it turns out. So this is a 67 million-year-old female dinosaur named Sue, who was previously diagnosed with tophaceous gout at the Field Museum in Chicago where she works. While in the upper valley for a business trip at the Monshire, she sought a second opinion here from Bob Wortman, who's since retired. And it, for those of you who don't know, gout, uh, Bob was a international gout specialist. Um, but he could only tentatively concur with the diagnosis that day because the joint tap at that visit was dry. <laughs> Nevertheless, based on history exam and x-rays demonstrating typical erosions, which you'll see in a second, he recommended urate lowering therapy. And this is a picture of Sue. And by the way, Sue is the best preserved specimen of T-Rex ever found. It was found in the 1990s in South Dakota. Um, and in examining the remains, they found these typical gouty erosions uh, um, in her joints. And another scientist went on to look at, a, I think, 86 other T-Rexes and found one other that also had typical Gaudi erosions. So if you don't count the index case, that's approaching one out of 87 or 1% of T-Rex had gout. That's reverse epidemiology. (laughs) So what happened to Sue? This is Sue at work at the Mondshire. Uh, Unfortunately, Sue's primary paleontologist decided against urate lowering therapy, and that was based on the ACP's 2016 recommendations not supporting treating to target in gout believe it or not. She recommended lifestyle modification, including, of course, a paleo diet, (laughs) with reduced red meat consumption and treating to avoid symptoms, as the ACP recommended. But, as is so typical in gout, Sue had some compliant issues, especially with not eating red meat. So that brings up unanswerable question one. Who is the dinosaur in this case? (laughs) I'm not going to answer that. But it, it's not Bob and it's not the paleontologist. So let's review some basics uh, about gout. This is stuff that you've known for many years. Um, there is a steady uh, pool of uh, purine nucleotides and purines, as well as nucleic acids, maintained. And the sources of the purines are either in your diet or purine synthesis in vivo. And then through the metabolic pathway purines are de- degraded to uric acid and then uric acid is gotten rid of the gut but predominantly in the kidney and I hope this doesn't bring back nightmares but this is the purine metabolism pathway and um, the problem with it in humans is that it ends up in uric acid most other uh, animals have another enzyme called uricase that trans. Uh, uh, converts uh, uric acid to allantoin, which is very water soluble and easy to excrete. But we lost, we lost that uh, uric acid over the years, and so now we're stuck with the consequences of having uric acid around. Most uh, paleontologists believe that there is a reason for that um, mutation Um, There has to be some sort of benefit from it, uh, but they aren't quite sure yet, and I'll tell you about some theories later. This is a a cartoon showing how the the uricase activity has declined over time with evolution of primates to the point where we have essentially no functional uricase, this is due to a number of uh, missense mutations. So let's look at paradigm two. And this is the one most of us learned about in medical school. So back to basics again. Again, focusing on the elimination, only 30% of, uh, of uric acid is uh, gotten rid of in the gut, 70% is gotten rid of through the kidneys, and therefore that's the major um, target for our therapies and usually a major reason why people get gout for reduced uh, renal clearance. And you know, I'm sure you remember this, the age old question of what percentage of gout patients are overproducers or under excreters and again, the vast majority are under excretors for a variety of reasons. It also shows you the risk factors for uh, gout, including being a male, age, and obesity. There are intrinsic factors uh, for overproduction of uric acid, there's a couple of enzyme uh, abnormalities, they are rare and account for a very small portion of gout. One is PRPP, um, hyperactivity, uh, I'm sorry, PRPP, amidotransferase. And if you had that in excess, it would drive this uh, um, series of uh, reactions and increase your uric acid. And of course, the famous HGPRT, now called HPRT, deficiency, stops the salvage pathway, and therefore shunts uh, more purines to uric acid, and that's the cause of Leshnayan syndrome, OK? Um, there are also extrinsic factors, which are most important in the, in the general population, and that's ethanol, fructose, purine-rich foods, etc. Those are, for the most part, related to lifestyle, which we'll talk about more in a second but again the vast majority of uh, patients with gout are under excretors and this is an old uh, study that probably wouldn't be done nowadays where they infused gout patients and normal subjects with uric acid to try and increase their blood level and see how their kidneys handle it and as you can see gouty patients shifted to the right as the uric acid was increased meaning they had a defect in responding to higher uric acid and getting rid of it in the kidneys this I'm sure you remember from medical schools because it was so cryptic, the, um, the way the kidney handles uric acid. So this is a multi-step process. Um, 100% of it is filtered in the glomerulus, then 98 to 100% is reabsorbed, then 50% is secreted, then another 40 to 48% is reabsorbed, and then you end up with just a couple of, uh, just eight to, 8 to 12% uh, actually going out in the urine. This pathway now looks very complicated. Um, on the right is the cartoon I just showed you, but we now know that there are multiple transporters involved in shuttling uric acid back and forth uh, in the proximal renal tubule. On the, your right side of this cartoon is the, uh, the collecting duct, and on the left side is back into the, the system. So you see the major uh, transporters of uric acid are URAT1 and OAT4, and they exchange them for different things. URAT1, the most important, exchanges it for monocarboxylates, okay? Then there are multiple other uh, um, transporters involved. So this is quite complex, but it gets the job done. Interestingly, to support the notion that there must be some evolutionary advantage to having a high uric acid. This is a study, uh, a paleontologic study, where they looked at not only uricase activity over evolution, but also um, urate capacity and affinity. And you can see, we already know this story, um, here's the uricase activity decreasing, that's in purple. Then, in lighter purple, there's uh, URAT capacity. And then, right around the time when uricase was lost, the affinity of URAT1 to transport uric acid went way up. So, what they think is going on here is it went from a high capacity, low affinity system to a high affinity, low capacity system so that you could tightly regulate uric acid. So you have plenty to handle it at lower doses, but at above that, you saturate the receptors and you dump it into the urine. So low capacity, but very high affinity. So that would theoretically uh, allow you to maintain a certain level of uric acid. Okay, gout as a lifestyle public health disease, or you are what you eat. So I would have guessed that that saying you are what you eat came from like the 60s or 70s, but actually <laughs> it goes back to the uh, 1800s and surprisingly it comes from a book that was written about gout. Uh, tell me what you eat and I will tell you what you are. And that is pretty much true in gout. So this brings up another old picture of the clinical course of gout, remember there are are three stages of gout, a long stage of asymptomatic ur- hyperuricemia where uric acid levels are high but you're asymptomatic, and that probably lasts 10 to 20 years, uh, believe it or not. And then you start having episodes of gout, and they tend to increase in f- uh, severity and frequency, involve multiple joints over time, and then you end up with chronic tophaceous gout with uh, bone and cartilage damage. But that stage one of gout is clearly uh, related to the hyperuricemia. And no matter what the lab slip says uh, in terms of the normal levels of uric acid in your blood, a uric acid of greater than 6.8 is actually abnormal. And I think I'll convince you of that in a bit. That is the concentration at which uric acid will crystallize, at least in vitro. Now, there are certain things in, in vivo that help prevent that crystallization. Um, but it's, a, it's an important um, um, breaking point. Above that, you're going to start forming uric acid crystals. Hyperuricemia is associated with a lot of things, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, stroke, chronic kidney disease, um, all-cause mortality, poor survival in the ICU, believe it or not, and hyperuricemia is rampant in the U.S., and I think this is probably the most stunning, statistic uh, in this talk the mean serum urate in the united states has increased from 3.4 milligrams per deciliter in the 1920s to 6.25 in the 1970s so that means over a 50-year period pretty much the average uric acid in the blood of u.s citizens doubled now if you think of any other uh, thing we measure on a, on a chemistry is that it's doubled over that time um, we now consider normal serum urates 3.5 to 7.2 in adult males and postmenopausal women and it's a lower normal level in premenopausal women these numbers are vary a bit and are debated frequently by people uh, who care about this but that's a reasonable um, a reasonable range nings data has shown that there's been a 3% increase in hyperuricemia between 1988 and basically 2008. So over a 20-year period, uh, 3% more Americans have hyperuricemia. And there's been a worldwide rise in the prevalence of hyperuricemia, and that may be related to uh, increased consumption of foods that are rich in purines, alcohol, soft drinks with fructose, and of course, the epidemic of obesity and the related morbidities, and also we contribute with some of the things, the medications we put people on. And clearly the incidence of gout is uh, very much associated with hyperuricemia. And this is old data that I think you've probably seen before, just showing that as you increase the serum uric acid, this is over five years, the incidence of gout increases greatly. Now there's a very striking worldwide distribution of gout where in this particular picture, the uh, blue countries, like the United States, have uh, a high incidence of gout, up to 4% of uh, the population. And in these more browner uh, uh, areas, generally in lower socioeconomic countries, there's a much lower level of gout. So this is gout prevalence in seven representative countries. And you can see there are certain uh, places like Taiwan where there's a very high incidence of gout. And this is a mixture of diet, but also a very strong genetic influence. Here's the incidence of gout in the UK in 2012 by age and sex. And I would point out to you that in in, uh, the 20s and 30s, gout is very much predominantly a male disease. But you see, particularly after menopause, women start cranking up. And there is definitely a a hormonal protection against gout, um, but there's also these other morbidities that accumulate as we age, and women are, of course, subject to them as well, and they include renal insufficiency, being put on diuretics, hypertension, obesity, etc., all risk factors for gout. The fructose story is interesting. It seems to be an amplifier of other problems in addition to being a problem in and of itself, and this looks at typical... Uh, gout um, risk factors and then assesses the patient's fructose consumption in quintiles and you can see for things that are known to increase gout such as BMI um, having uh, higher consumption of fructose the right or fifth quintile over here increases your risk same thing with alcohol use uh, and here's an interesting thing, that dairy products have been shown to decrease your risk of gout, and that's e- even as an effect if you are a high fructose drink consumer. So one of the big questions about uh, hyperuricemia, is it an independent risk factor for coronary heart disease? And we don't know the answer to this yet. We should, but we don't. Um, uh, studies have been mixed but there are studies that are going on still and the story gets even more confusing as you'll see in a, in a few slides but this this would be a, the subject of an, an entire uh, another medical grand rounds so it's that confusing but also that important gout as an auto-inflammatory disease <laughs> So uh, many of you are probably familiar with the innate immune system, which is a hot item these days. And this is a primitive part of the immune system that's been there forever to respond immediately to threats from the outside, and as it turns out, from threats from the inside as well. So what these cells have are, uh, and these are macrophages, monocytes, dendritic cells, etc. They have pattern recognition receptors, um, or PRRs, and so they recognize quickly or immediately uh, motifs that they, you see in bacteria, fungi, etc., and those are called pathogen-associated molecular patterns, or PAMPs. But they also see damage-associated molecular patterns, or DAMPs. And it turns out that uh, uric acid, or monosodium urate, is a DAMP. And for some reason, your body has been programmed to react very strongly against uric acid and set off this inflammatory cascade. And so, um, it's really difficult to see that. So what you have here is uh, the synovium of the uh, first MTP, of course, with uh, MSU crystals. They're recognized by these damp receptors on monocytes that triggers uh, activation over here of the caspase uh, system through the NALP3 inflammasome. Activation of caspase cleaves pro il one beta to IL-1-beta, which is released into the environment, and that goes on to stimulate other cells like synoviocytes or other monocytes to produce inflammatory mediators and chemoattractants, which bring this influx of neutrophils in. Okay. And this is all done without the help of the adaptive immune system. In other words, B cells, T cells, antibodies. This is all pre-programmed to go off at this provocation. But as we all know, gout attacks end even without treatment, generally speaking, especially early on. They usually last two to seven days. So the body must have a mechanism for shutting this down. And it turns out as monocytes mature into macrophages, they continue to ingest the crystals, but they also start releasing Uh, anti-inflammatory cytokines like TGF-beta and with the increased vascular permeability that you see with uh, inflammation, you start to see an influx of proteins that can actually bind to the crystal and start to hide them from the immune systems such as apolipoprotein B now there's a new player on the block, and you may have heard about this, called NETS, uh, or neutrophil extracellular traps. These are very important now in infectious disease. The neutrophils, in addition to ingesting um, uh, bugs and uh, bug particles, also have this capability of extruding suddenly uh, DNA and other intracellular components that act sort of like a net to capture uh, bacteria, etc., extracellularly. And, um, and kill them. Um, it also triggers an intense immune response, but over time, if you have enough of these neutrophils extruding this material, it actually becomes anti-inflammatory, at least that's the theory. It's, it's a little bit controversial. So they may actually, over time, be part of this dampening of the response. And they also may be intimately involved, at least in gout, to make TOFI, these aggregated nets where you get a bunch of these coalescing is appears to be very similar um, histologically to a tophus. Okay and the last paradigm is gout as a common chronic debilitating disease that's mainly due to poor compliance and faulty medical management or is gout brain a transmissible disease? Do the general audience know what the gout brain is? <laughs> it's a term rheumatologists use because, gosh darn it, no matter what you tell them, gout patients never do the right thing.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
2: and they, you know. <sighs> so um, <laughs> the question is, can you catch that from them? And uh, <laughs> I- I'm not sure. But this is a big problem. Uh, Gout affects up to 5 million people in the United States, a similar number in the, the, uh, the EU. It's the commonest inflammatory arthritis in men, greater than 40. It affects 1% to 2% uh, of the adults in the developed countries. And as I've said, already the incidence and prevalence is increasing along with the obesity ed- epidemic, people living longer, people living longer despite having chronic uh, morbidities, and they're on a lot of medications. Um, And all of these things are aggravating hyperuricemia. So in that sense, you may just look at it as we're just victims of our own success. People live longer, we have good drugs that treat chronic diseases, and this is something we just have to put up with. But the bottom line is gout should be effectively treated almost 100% of the time. Just think about it, name another disease other than infection that we understand the underlying pathophysiology so well. We can diagnose it with absolute certainty. Just put a needle in there and see those crystals. And we have such effective therapy. And yet it continues to be one of the most poorly treated diseases that we have. 20 to 25% of patients are not prescribed appropriate therapy for flares. 50 to 70% of patients are not prescribed sufficient urate-lowering therapy. And over half of the patients are noncompliant. So this is a, a real issue, and it doesn't really have to be. And so you could conclude that why do patients still suffer from gout? That we don't prescribe the right drug in the right doses at the right time. Please stop me. (laughs) That sounds vaguely familiar. Uh, And gout patients are not compliant. So that's the paradigm section. And now we're gonna move on to an update on treatment of gout which has changed dramatically over the last 10 years or so. So new drugs for gout. Let me remind you that allopurinol was approved by the FDA for gout in 1965. So there was over 40 years between that and when a new drug was again approved by the FDA for gout. And that was Fibuxostat in 2009. And we're gonna talk about each of these new drugs. So the first one we're gonna talk about is Fibuxostat which is a new a relatively new, 10 years now, xanthine oxidase inhibitor. It's a potent inhibitor. It can be taken orally, of course. It's predictable in its ability to lower uric acid. It is not a purine analog, and it is very selective for xanthine oxidase, or XO. And here's a picture of febuxostat compared to xanthine allopurinol and oxypurinol. It's absorbed rapidly, it has a half life of 4 to 18 hours, so it can be dosed just once a day. It's metabolized by the liver. 50% is excreted in the gut and 50% in the urine. And there's no dose adjustment needed if the creatinine clearance is greater than 30. These are a summary of the Fibuxostat Phase three trials, and I want to point out just a few things about them. Number one, if you look along the top, these are three very large studies. So they really looked at a lot of patients' um, to get this drug approved. And the CONFIRMS trial, the last one, the biggest, um, was actually required by the FDA because they thought there might be a cardiovascular signal in the APEX study. So the FDA made them go out and do another whole study. So that's point one. Point two is that Fibuxostat works. It doesn't work perfectly, but uh, you can see, particularly at the higher doses, down on the bottom row, that it's uh, pretty effective for, um, for gout and for lowering uric acid. The third thing I want to point out is that the dose in all of these studies of the comparator allopurinol was fixed and at a relatively low dose of 200 to 300 milligrams, which historically is notoriously inadequate for lowering your seric, serum uric acid and over 50% of patients will not hit the target. Uric acid of less than six with 300 milligrams of allopurinol. So as far as the comparison between allopurinol and fibuxestat in these studies, it's worthless. As far as showing that febuxostat works, it's, these are good studies. Now in that first uh, phase three trial I showed you, they just gave naproxen and colchicine for the first week as prophylaxis against the predicted attacks that you get when you start a urate lowering therapy. And so you can see uh, when they stopped prophylaxis at eight weeks, there was an uptick in flares. So that, they proved this once again, and that informed them for the future studies where they continue prophylaxis for longer. And now the general recommendation based on these studies is to prophylax for six months, at least three and probably six. As I mentioned, there was this cardiovascular signal or possible cardiovascular signal in the APEX, the second trial, and there are the, there are the events. Um, but they were not statistically significantly different. But despite that, the FDA, who was gun-shy at the time, um, mainly because of the Vioxx experience and others, wanted to make sure there was no cardiovascular sin- signal and required confirms. And confirms did show uh, some events, um, but again, no statistically significant difference. But the FDA still wasn't satisfied, so they gave fibucostat approval in the U.S. at just 40 and 80 milligrams, where it was approved in the European Union at 80 and 120 milligrams a day. And the FDA required that they do a post-marketing study of cardiovascular events so my conclusions about febuxostat is that generally it's well tolerated. You start at 40 milligrams a day if the creatinine clearance is greater than 30. Prophylax for flares for six months, increase it to 80 milligrams a day if the serum urate remains above six. It's safe with Coumadin, but the other interactions are the same that you're concerned about as with allopurinol. And I think we've already talked about the, these problems with the studies. Um, Again, the consensus now on allopurinol is to start low and go slow. Uh, Not only will that reduce the frequency of gout flares, it's also now known that that will reduce the possibility of developing hypersensitivity syndrome, which is a potentially fatal uh, reaction to allopurinol. Again, prophylaxis is critical, six months. And again, this also proved once more that the faster you drop that uric acid, the more likely you're gonna be to precipitate an attack. So here was the required study that just came out almost a year ago uh, today um, on cardiovascular safety of the buxostat or allopurinol. So these were patients with gout and uh, previous coronary disease. So this is a secondary examination and they were randomly assigned to receive buxostat or allopurinol and they were stratified according to kidney function. And this was a non-inferiority margin in terms of uh, their primary endpoint which is a number of uh, cardiovascular uh, uh, measures including cardiovascular death, non-fatal MI, non-fatal stroke, or unstable angina with urgent revascularization. And again a huge study 6,190 patients were randomized and received one of the drugs, and they were followed for 32 months of uh, medium duration. And I will point out at the bottom, like all studies with gout, there was a high dropout rate, or discontinuation rate, or both. And these are the results. The first one was very reassuring when they looked at their composite primary endpoint. There was no difference between fibuxostat and allopurinol, but when they looked at secondary endpoints, cardiovascular death, it was significantly higher in fibuxostat. And also when they looked at all-cause mortality, it was also higher in the fibuxostat. Now these are not dramatic numbers. This is looking at the Kaplan-Meier curves. Um, and I hope you can see better than I can. But if you look at the primary endpoint, there is no difference. And then there are these small but statistically significant differences between. Um, and allopurinol in the cardiovascular mortality and all death morta- all cause mortality. So, the conclusions from this study, which is called CARES, was in patients with gout and coexisting major cardiovascular disease pre existing, that fabuxostat was non inferior to allopurinol regarding total cardiovascular events, but all cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality was higher with the fabuxostat than allopurinol. And the results were the same when you analyze just patients who were on the drug who had just finished it within the last 30 days. So what are the implications of this for, uh, for clinical practice? So first of all, obviously, you have got to now discuss seriously cardiovascular risk if you're thinking of putting somebody on fibuxostat. It does not support first-line use of fibuxostat as, as urate-lowering therapy, but we weren't using it that way anyway. Um, you should always go with allopurinol first. So it's now a little bit unclear where, it, where it's going to be in our decision-making, but I have a feeling at the end of the day it's not going to make a difference, these results. I think people are still going to pretty much prescribe it the way they always have. Um, but those recommendations that just came out a few, a few years ago now have to be revised because of this new information. Despite that, just uh, less than a month ago, the FDA issued a black box warning on uh, ELORC, uh, warning about the risk of uh, cardiovascular-related death. Okay, now I told you already that uh, we've lost your case through evolution. Hey, what a great idea. Just give uricase back to the patient. And we've been doing that for a while in hematology oncology. So now we're looking at this. We want to convert the excess uric acid to elantoin using an exogenous uricase. And there's a history of uricase development in the United States that predated the 90s. But in the 90s, things really pick up because they developed recombinant genetically modified S. cervaceae expressing A. flavus uricase. And in 2002, rasp uricase was approved by the FDA for tumor lysis syndrome and it dramatically, I don't know if there's any hematologists in the audience, it is impressive the way it dramatically lowers serum uric acid within 24 hours. It has a short half-life, but the problem is it's immunogenic and really it should only be used once because basically it's a foreign protein and the second time it comes around your body is ready for it. So what were the strategies to overcome this? First of all, the short half-life, they wanted to use pegylation to extend that. And as far as the immunogenicity, they wanted to use a mammalian rather than a um, uh, a bacterial or fungal uh, uricase. So they made pegylodacase. And this is a, a tetramer of uricases. And then they coat that with 36 strands, nine strands each of PEG, And um, the pharmacodynamics of this drug is that with up to an eight milligram dose IV, you get this linear increase in uricase activity in the blood. And the enzyme activity has a long half-life because it's pegylated now, it lasts uh, up to two weeks. And with anything at four milligrams or above, you get this very dramatic drop in uric acid from an average of 11 down to an average of one. It's truly remarkable, and that uric acid will stay low for 21 days, and I'm gonna show you some data from their phase two study, and I just wanna point out a few things, this is, they were checking different doses. Clearly, the winner here is the eight milligrams every two weeks, which is the blue line down here. I'm not sure you're seeing that. But the other thing I will point out to you is the striking elevation of uric acids these patients have, and how it all disappeared in less than a day basically and then uh, obviously the 8 milligrams every two weeks is the best but uh, most of the different protocols are keeping that uric acid below the target of 6 as you can see and once you stop it on the last administration there the uric acid starts to predictably go back up so it works. So then went on to do phase 3 trials actually did two trials and put them together And uh, they used quite a lot of prophylaxis, as you see, against flares and against infusion reactions. And to to, uh, make a long story short, that didn't work. (laughs) Um, So first of all, it was very effective, as you might have expected, um, especially the eight milligrams every two weeks. But, it caused an incredible amount of side effects. So 77 to 80% of people had gout flares within the first three months as opposed to placebo who only had 54%. Remember, these are bad gout patients. So that's why the placebo are still having attacks. But then after four months, the treatment group starts to have less attacks than the placebo group. So it starts to kick in. But there are also an incredible amount of serious adverse events. About 25% uh, of patients in the peglodicase group had uh, serious AEs, and 10% had to discontinue approximately. There were also uh, a few deaths in the uh, peglodicase groups, but they weren't felt to be directly drug-related. Infusion reactions were also very common, uh, about 25 to 40%, and some of them were severe, five to 10%, and there were none in the placebo group. Now, fortunate for this drug, because I don't think it, it might have been approved if, this, if they hadn't discovered this, that if you start developing antibodies to the drug, which is what drives these infusion reactions, you can detect that in the blood by measuring the serum uric acid, because in addition to generating infusion reactions, it affects the enzymatic activity of the drug. So it stops working, basically. So a tip off that you're revving up your immune system is that when you give the drug, it stops working and the uric acid does not go down. So if you get a serum uric acid greater than six, you should stop the drug, and that's what people do. One thing I should mention, because most of what I told you is all pretty much bad news, the drug really does work and it, it, it works in kind of remarkable ways. They also looked at TOFAS reduction and it has the capability of getting rid of TOFI quickly. When we put somebody on standard urate-lowering therapy, like allopurinol or we tell them, well, your TOFI are going to go away. And they go, that's great, doc. How long is it going to take? Eh, two or three years, maybe four. And that's about right. So uh, here's an example of a patient receiving peglodicase for 12 weeks, and the TOFIS uh, basically uh, disappears if you look at the x-rays, one of the things rheumatologists do in their spare time is think about, what happens if somebody with gout, if you get rid of all that tophi it's, it's already eaten away their joint, do they just have like a floppy, a floppy joint where all that tophus was? And the answer is no, there's actually some bone formation. As you can see, over here, this joint is completely replaced with tophus, and then there starts to be some ossification, et cetera. So it looks like you can reform some semblance of a digit. So because of this data, FDA approved uh, P-D- PGL, case for eight milligrams every two weeks in 2010, but had a black box warning from the get-go about uh, infusion reactions and anaphylaxis. Should be given at centers that are familiar with handling this drug, it really is kind of radioactive. <laughs> I mean that in a figurative way. Um, I'm a rheumatologist. I have never prescribed anyone peglodicase. I always seem to find a reason why not to, because I don't want to deal with what I know are going to be these side effects. We've gotten better at dealing with them, but they still happen. Um, So who do you use it for? Well, patients who are the worst of the worst, basically. The trouble with peglodicase, in addition to being a dangerous drug in general, it came out right after fibucis came out and I think Febuxostat captured all, almost all of that market. So uh, if Febuxostat wasn't around, I suspect we would been using more Pegloticase, but we don't have to anymore. And so now we kind of think of it as a debulking agent. If you have to give it, you give it so you can get rid of all this deposited uric acid quickly and then hopefully you can maintain somebody on a different drug. And the newest of of the bunch is lisinurad, which is a new uricose uric. So now we're trying to speed up renal excretion of uric acid to lower your serum uric acid. So the development of this drug was interesting in that uh, it was discovered serendipitously by RDF Bioscience out in San Diego. In 2008, they were trying to develop a reverse transcriptase inhibitor for AIDS, and they found that one of their compounds was a potent uricose uric. So they studied that and they found out that it was a metabolite of that drug, which they have since named lisinurad, um, that directly inhibited URAT1, that, enzyme I t- that transporter that I told you was so important. It also inhibits O4, which is involved in diuretic-induced hyperuricemia. And it had no interaction with O1 and O3, those transporters, which are the ones that are responsible for the drug interactions with probenicid. Um, So that gave it a better safety profile because it seemed to be more specific than the older uricose urics. And this chart demonstrates that. I'll just point out that it's flip-flop from the previous cartoons I've showed you and now this is the tubule. This is where the urine is going by containing the uric acid. And you can see that lisinurad is fairly specific um, for urat 1 and oat 4. And the older um, Uricosurix, probenicid, which is, prior to the was the only one available in the United States, and benzbromarone, which is used around the world and not in the United States, mainly because of liver toxicity. They also hit a lot of other of these transporters, so that you get sort of this composite effect, and you also get interactions with other drugs. So that's the advantage of lisinurad. And it turns out it's a good oral drug. It has rapid absorption. It's got a decent half-life. That should be, you know, 30 to 40 percent is excreted unchanged in the urine, and it lowers the uric acid in a dose-dependent fashion. A 200 milligram dose, which is the standard dose now, will increase urine, uh, uric acid, for about 6 to 12 hours. The first study, which is phase 2, where they used 400 versus placebo, was kind of a failure first of all, only thirty percent of patients uh, hit the endpoint, the therapeutic endpoint, which was a serum uric acid less than six at six months, versus two percent in placebo. that was significant, but it was a little disappointing okay What was more disappointing that twenty percent of the lacirad group had renal toxicity, and we think that 's likely due to dumping. All of a sudden, a bunch of uric acid into your collecting system, and it caused interstitial disease. Because of that, the FDA said that no no monotherapy with um, losinurad because of this renal toxicity. What the company went went on to do is develop a inhibitor. Now, to many of you, including me. <laughs> This may sound like a crazy idea. I mean, I've told you already that there's a real compliance issue with gout patients. Now you're adding a couple of drugs, telling them they have to take together. They have trouble taking one drug the right way. And it turns out if you don't take the, the right one, you could be in big trouble in terms of your kidneys. So as you might expect, they came up with a combo drug. And called Dizalo, and that was approved uh, in 2017. So it contains the allopurinol and the lesinurad in one dose. So you, if you take one, you got to take both. Okay, and that has still has a black box warning for uh, acute renal failure. So here's unanswerable question two, and for those of you who were at the last gout lecture here eight or nine years ago. I asked this question back then. How many of you remember the answer? Well, I have to tell you that since that time, they've identified the exact uh, genetic defect. So they uh, Dalmatians have very high serum uric acids. They're the only dogs that have that, apparently. And um, it's true to the breed. And it turns out they don't get gout, arthritis, but they get uric acid deposition in their bladders uh, and urate stones, and it's very uncomfortable for them. It turns out that they have, the reason they don't get gout is they have a a transporter defect which blocks the uric acid from getting into the liver and being exposed to uricase, because they still have uricase around, and so it remains in your bloodstream at a high level, but that defect also happens to affect the urine transport, so you you have high levels of uric acid in the blood but you dump it all so they don't get gout because it's not in their blood but it's all in their collecting system so they get stones and they're actually, I also found this out since then, that they're doing breeding now taking a, doing multiple backbreedings, trying to get rid of this gene um, in uh, Dalmatians so I'm going to briefly talk about targeting acute inflammation, or IL-1 inhibition. As I told you, we now know that you activate the in- innate immune system, and one of the major mediators of that acute inflammation in gout is IL-1. So why not just target IL-1? And there have been a number of drugs that did this. Again, this is not prophylaxis, this is not urate lowering, this is actually treating attacks now, or prophylaxing against attacks. Um, So why not just target IL-1 for a variety of reasons that we've already talked about? So there were three contenders in this field, and the one that's kind of done the best, but still hasn't quite made it, is canakinumab. This is a fully human anti-IL-1 beta antibody that has a long half-life, so you can give it once every three months. It's been FDA approved for caps, um, cryopyrin-associated periodic syndromes or auto-inflammatory disease. Again, this is sort of targeting the inflammasome. And it was approved for systemic JIA or Stills disease back in 2013. So this was years ago. They did a trial in acute gout, so people came in with an acute attack of gout. They had failed NSAIDs or colchicine to quickly turn it around. And so they were given one shot of canakinumab at various doses or one shot of triamcinolone IM. Which we use in the in the clinic sometimes for acute gout, just give them an sh- IM shot of high dose steroids, and that'll usually shut off a gout attack. Um, the canakinumab worked better; it was better for pain and it worked more quickly. But the most striking things that over the eight week follow up, the canakinumab at the 150 milligram dose, only three and a half, 3.7 uh, percent of the patients uh, had. Uh, repeat flares, whereas 45% of the people who got the steroid shot did. Um, So the makers of canakinumab went to the FDA with that information, and they were shot down. That was in 2011, and the reason was, A, the expense, but B, they wanted more safety data, particularly in the elderly. And that brings us to almost the present, where... uh, Again, in line with thinking now of atherosclerotic disease as an inflammatory disease, um, they decided to try canakinumab in patients uh, with atherosclerotic disease for secondary prevention. So this was a large randomized control trial of canakinumab, 10,000 patients, who had a previous MI, but they also had to have an elevated CRP, a high-sensitive CRP greater than two. And then they gave them various doses of Either canumab at 50, 150, or 300 milligrams sub Q every three months, so again, just one shot every three months, and compared that with a placebo sham injection. And their primary endpoint was the usual cardiovascular events non fatal MI, non fatal stroke, or cardiovascular death. Now, in this study, they found that canycunumab indeed indeed had a higher risk of fatal infections. but there was no uh, difference in all-cause mortality. And strikingly, the 150 milligram dose again, significantly lowered the rate of cardiovascular events, independent of lipid lowering. So in the top panel here, you see that the drug works at lowering your uh, CRP. So that's placebo in blue, and you see a a good drop in CRP with all doses of canycinumab. And then you see no difference between the groups in terms of lipids. But if you look on the right two panels, with the 150 milligram uh, dose of canakinumab, you do see a significant reduction in the primary endpoint, which I mentioned were cardiovascular events and cardiovascular death. And when you threw in the secondary endpoint, which is the same parameters plus urgent stenting, it was also significant. So with that, the company Novartis went to the FDA as secondary prevention for cardiovascular disease with canakinumab, <laughs> slammed again, and this was just uh, a, a year ago. Okay, and this again was concerns about expense, also concerns about um, also concerns about uh, infection. So there was a sub-analysis, why am I talking about cardiovascular disease? There's a sub-analysis of this where they look at it preventing gout. So they took patients who had gout in this cohort of 10,000, and you know they're already getting the, the treatment, um, and they ascertained the history of gout at baseline, and then they checked for gout attacks, and I'll cut to the chase on this one. All the doses of canakinumab significantly reduced episodes of gout in patients who had underlying gout. Okay? So I'm sure they're gonna go to the FDA now and ask, can we get this approved for gout prevention? But who knows the problem with this approach? Right, basically, you're treating the symptoms, you're not treating the primary problem, so presumably, if you're not doing anything else, they're continuing to accumulate ToFi, et cetera, um, which will come up again in a second when we talk about the new gout uh, guidelines from the American College of uh, Physicians, which I already bad-mouthed. <laughs> so these are four major gout guidelines that have come out over the past 10 years or so. Three of them are from rheumatology organizations and are uh, either international or European, multi, multi-country European. And then the ACP came out with their recommendations in 2016 and if you look at the Rheumatology Group's recommendations, they're all pretty much the same. There's quibbling that goes on, like typical of subspecialists. We argue about what constitutes frequent attacks. Is it two or more than two? Um, but basically, they all recommend the same thing. And here's an example that the ACR's recommendation about lifestyle, including reducing consumption of purine-rich food, reducing alcohol consumption, especially beer, watching out for high fructose uh, products, etc and then they come up with algorithms for how to treat attacks, and also algorithms for how to lower the uric acid, and they're pretty much straightforward. But when the ACP came out with theirs, there was a glaring uh, difference, and that was about treating to lower uric acid to six, the target that we all use. Um, And here's what they said. A paradigm has developed that monitoring serum urate levels and targeting a specific level, i.e. treat the target, is what we call it, reduces acute gout attacks and subsequent joint damage. An alternative strategy bases the intensity of ULT on the goal of avoiding recurrent gout attacks, treat to avoid symptoms, with no monitoring of urate levels. Comparative effectiveness between these two approaches should be studied. So if you're a rheumatologist, this is like, you know, rattling the cage, it's, <laughs> it really defies everything we know about uh, gout. And it, it's funny, when I was reviewing for this uh, talk and going through all these studies, there is such a strong underlying assumption that this is the right thing to do. Every All those studies I showed you, showing these drugs to be efficacious and other drugs not to be, is all predicated on lowering the serum muric acid below six. So this was startling. And in the same issue that it came out in the annals, there was an editorial um, counteracting this. Um, uh, just to bring this, this approach up and offering it as an alternative, this has never been tested. So we've never done a randomized controlled trial of treating to targeting gout, but we have a lot of indirect evidence, including very large clinical trials. And they bring up a, 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 an approach that has never been tested, other than in the real world, where it clearly doesn't work. When, when we've seen it in the past, and the real problem with this is, it might perpetuate this ongoing problem with the management of gout, because this really is very nebulous, and it's perfect uh, perfect territory for for a primary provider to get lost and say, "Well, the ACP says this. You know, it's okay to treat it this other way." 90%, over 90% of gout is taken care of by primary care providers. So, you know, if they're not doing it right, then that's a big problem. And basically the problem is what I just said about cankinumab. If you're just putting them on your, uh, a urate-lowering therapy for an undisclosed amount of time and not following uric acid levels, you basically are perpetuating the disease. You really want to get that uric acid lower than 6 so you can start reversing the accumulation of uric acid and tophi and clear the system. There also were a couple other glaring uh, concerns about the editorial. They've recommended using 300 milligrams of allopurinol to start. Number one, that's not effective. And number two, that increases the risk of flares and uh, hypersensitivity syndrome. So let me just summarize, and then I'll stop. Um, Fabucostat has really been a game changer for gout treatment, particularly for patients with allopurinol sensitivity and renal insufficiency. And although the CARES data is concerning, I don't think it's likely to change our approach, um, which includes using allopurinol as a first line anyway. I think the renal toxicity and compliance issues will haunt lisinorad and any further uricose uric development. What Pharma is looking at now is to find a better uricose uric to me, that's kind of, well, lisiniorate is a pretty good one and it causes problems with dumping all that uric acid into your system. If you find a better one, won't that just compound the problem? So I think maybe if there's gonna be a solution there, it's just hitting the right combination of transporters such that you you lower the uric acid in another way other than just dumping it into the, into the urine. PGL, as I said, is a very serious drug. Um, should only be used in people who fail everything, and even then you should really think about using it. And, and in honesty, that's a specialty decision, not going to be made by a primary physician for the most part. The IL-1 inhibitors are promising, but they're expensive, and the FDA keeps smacking them down, so I don't know if we'll ever uh, see one approved. And again, the ICP guidelines, I think, are a real setback to better management. That's the bad news. The good news is that we're learning a lot more about gout. There were no drugs developed in 40 years. In the last 10 years, we have three or four new ones. Um, And I think the future is bright and that we'll, we'll get better ways to treat this very common disease over the next few years. Thank you.